This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. As the economy starts to slowly reopen across the country, how do we keep the focus on improving conditions for residents in long-term care? For one, a number of lawsuits have been launched. Is that the way to go? Our Monday Zoomer squad weighed in on these questions. Libby Snymer was joined by Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. What we've seen sort of unfold in these nursing homes is just so tragic, but not unique to COVID. It's And so we know that a lot of the challenges that we're seeing, you know, they existed before and that they will persist. So even if COVID does go away, the challenges will continue unless government acts. There's no reason we can't hold two uh, points of view simultaneously, and that is to clean up the deficiencies in the long-term care system, particularly as a way of uh, mitigating, you know, future pandemics. We, We can attack that while also uh, getting the economy back. Nobody's thinking that uh, the long-term care problem would be sufficient reason to never restart the economy. So, I mean, I think one can happen along with the other. I'm talking about more people's focus because, you know, it's a, it's kind of a situation, I think, where everybody was forced to look. And now they'll be looking at other things. We're going to have to get the economy going first and get things sorted out. And then when we have a little bit of breathing space, I think we'll come back and address it. And, and maybe maybe that time is good. You know, it'll, it'll let us all reflect on it. And uh, rather than going at it, well, it's still top of mind. What about these uh, proposed lawsuits? Uh, a couple of them are proposed class action lawsuits, not yet certified, about nursing home negligence during the pandemic. Is that a good way to go? Um, I gather that legal experts are saying that those cases will turn on what is considered reasonable care during a pandemic. Uh, anybody have a view on that? I think in many ways they were inevitable because of you know, the tragedy that we've seen unfold in long-term care homes around the country, again, no one can really claim to be surprised at what happened. So, you know, to your question, I think in many ways these class actions were inevitable. My heart just breaks for the families who lost loved ones. And I would argue that every one of these deaths was preventable in long-term care. But from a legal point of view and and some of the background material we looked at, you know, in, in prep for the show is that it's a it's a very, very tough threshold because you have to prove that it was, given that the nursing home or the long-term care facility is obviously not responsible for the virus in the first place, you have to prove that what they did made the difference between life and death, and that's not going to be uh, easy. But I want to uh, just flag another angle of this, Libby, for the listener, for you and for the listeners, that in the United States, which is infinitely, infinitely more litigious in Canada, they are starting to talk about whether state governments are leaving themselves open to liability 
uh, for opening their economies too soon. If you declared the lockdown was over and people went back to work and then I got sick and, uh, God forbid, something, you know, somebody got sick and died, uh, can you then be sued? And in the United States, where they're very trigger-happy with lawsuits, uh, liability is becoming an actual topic now in assessing whether they can, uh, can or should restart the economy. To your point, David, I think that there will be some things that are that are able to be clearly demonstrated. For example, care workers working in multiple homes. Why did BC prevent its care workers from working in more, multiple homes two weeks before Ontario did? Um, why were many of these homes abandoned by care workers? I mean, I'm thinking of the Maison Heron comes to mind. That one's a pretty obvious case of negligence. But in a lot of the other homes, for example, you know, why were care workers not fully equipped with personal protective gear months ago? Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday, Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now that the federal conservative leadership race is back on, supporters are looking primarily at two candidates, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. The conservatives are not reopening the nomination process, a decision some editorial writers are criticizing, saying that the party needs a different kind of leader in the wake of the pandemic. Commenting as they do every Tuesday on Fight Back, our strategy panelists, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. The campaign was in full mode, obviously, before uh, COVID happened, and, and the party rightfully suspended it and uh, and took some time to kind of see what, what was happening and assess it and determine what best to do. But but during that period of time, Libby, when, when it was on, a lot of work was actually put in to get to the four that we've got now that have been approved. And, and to open it up now <clears throat> would, would be a disservice to those four, quite frankly, and also the ones that actually tried to get in from the beginning. So, you know, look, we've got two, we have four good candidates, two, you know, top tier candidates in Aaron O'Toole and in Peter McKay. Uh, and I think the party will be well served with either one of them. Uh, Karen, do you agree? Are either one of those people, are they the right leader that, for the Conservatives in the wake of the pandemic? Well, I think both of them uh, have an opportunity to, and we'll, we'll stick to the two of them because I, I don't actually think that, I think those are the ones that we're really talking about here. And, you know, I, I think that they will have to demonstrate that they are up for it, actually. And I, and I think the party has to Except that maybe they might have to revisit the decision. I mean, I don't know at what point you just make a decision and move on and don't go back and look at it again. But, you know, the world has changed and the issues confronting Canadians have changed. And, you know, getting through that, we've talked about this, getting through this pandemic is, is one thing. Uh, rebuilding the economy, figuring out our economic security, figuring out our supply chain um, security. Th- those are those are big issues that uh, you know. And even th- th- there's a new geopolitical system that we're going to have to contend with that we don't entirely understand yet. And th- and those are big issues. Those are uh, not ones that either candidate right now has been speaking to, and they will have to. Uh, so we'll wait and see. Uh, you know, maybe and, and you know through this process, maybe they'll both rise to the challenge and provide Canadians with with some great some great choices. Uh, but 
you know, I, I, I do think that they've done a disservice, the Conservative Party, to, to not be a little bit more open-minded, uh, given the way things have changed. Uh, yeah, Charles, I mean, we haven't heard very much from those two candidates. And, and frankly, what we have heard has not actually been uh, right on the mark. What do you think? Well, I agree with Karen. I think they should reopen the race, given just how much has changed and how much of our political dynamic has changed. That said, I think the chances of them reopening the race are next to zero. Um, what's interesting is uh, a couple things. First off, um, where everyone earlier, a few months ago, thought this would be a coronation for Peter McKay, he, his campaign and he himself have obviously had some pretty significant missteps over recent weeks. And a lot of conservatives are saying that O'Toole is the one to watch, which is quite scary if you're a conservative, because there's not a lot to uh, this fellow that is on the record in terms of, you know, what does he stand for? What are his big ideas? What's really interesting, though, is remember that when conservatives um, elected Andrew Scheer, he had 22 percent on the first ballot. and He was able to grow that ultimately to 51% on the 13th ballot when he narrowly defeated Maxime Bernier for the Conservative leadership. And um, it's interesting that the two also rands in the, in the current Conservative race are pretty right of centre. One sort of libertarian, the other is just kook. They could actually shape the outcome of, of the leadership races of significant concern. At the end of the day, um, what he said about Aaron O'Toole is, is it can't be farther from the truth. Aaron O'Toole has been an MP uh, and an absolute able backbencher. He was a minister uh, for a short period of time in the last Harper government uh, and is a former uh, a helicopter uh, a seeking pilot uh, and has exemplary sort of, you know, credentials, not only to be, you know, the party, but to be prime minister of this country. Uh, and Peter McKay is, you know, speaks for himself to the fact that he's been just an absolute, um, uh, you know, stellar, stellar performer with, with our caucus and government and all that kind of stuff. So we've got two really, really able leaders uh, running for this thing, and either one of them would be a phenomenal leader and prime minister. So I, I got to disagree with, with Charles on his assessment. And of course, he's a liberal, and I understand that. But look, um, at the end of the day, you know, the fact that the, the, the leadership race was on pause and now has been beginning. I think you're going to see Peter and Aaron, and quite frankly, the other two as well, but Peter and Aaron, uh, who are going to be a lot more proactive and are going to be a lot more, um, you know, sort of open with respect to what, how they see things running and, and how they think they would do, what, what they would do with respect to, to the policies that we're seeing out of the prime minister over the last little while, because it's their job now. And of course, they were on pause for a while, but now the, now the leadership is picked. The date's going to be August sometime. Um, you're going to see them be a lot more proactive on this. And, and quite frankly, Canadians will be surprised by what they what they see coming out of Aaron and Peter. Fightbacks Tuesday strategy panel. John Capobianco, Charles Byrd and Karen Stintz. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, we learned about a grim statistic in the pandemic. According to one of our leading geriatricians, Dr. Samir Sinha, Canada now has the largest percentage of nursing home deaths in the world. To discuss the continuing tragic and dire situation, Libby Snymer was joined by Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents 60,000 frontline healthcare workers in Ontario. I know that there's a serious problem in long-term care in Canada, but to be the largest, yeah, it's shocking. Very disappointing. Jane? 
Well, I mean, it, it's out of 14 countries, and I'm not sure that we have the full picture, but it's obviously just far too high. Um, and I think when you look at, you know, like a country like Australia has had less deaths than we have had in some single homes, I think that those are the numbers that we really need to be looking at. Uh, one of the things that that he brought up when I was speaking to him is that we have numbers on long, long-term care, but as far as he's concerned, we should be looking at retirement homes as well. There are outbreaks in quite a number of those, and, and they are actually uh, have a lot looser regulation than our long-term care homes. Well, I would agree with that. I think that... Um the, the one difference between a retirement home and a long-term care home is that retirement homes do certainly tend to have uh, people, not always, but in most retirement homes, people tend to have a room or a suite where they can be um, cordoned off. So the isolation is a little bit easier in, in retirement homes. So we would hopefully not see quite as many deaths, but it's absolutely a huge problem in retirement homes as well. Uh, Charlene, do you have a view of that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, we often forget about retirement homes and really, uh, um, Jane is right. The accommodations are different, but the care levels are becoming much closer to what you're seeing in the nursing homes. And, uh, the personal support workers will tend to work in both nursing homes and retirement homes. So there is some similarity, but regulations is an issue as well. I do agree with Jane. And I think that, that because they are sort of the forgotten again, Things like getting PPE into those homes, into any kind of congregate living, whether it's, you know, uh, attendant care, group homes and all of that, um, has taken a backseat to the tragedies that we're seeing in long-term care. And we have to make sure that anyone living in congregate care is, is cared for properly mm-hmm. and the staff are, to care, are, are properly um outfitted with the PPE. Uh, well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the the case of that horrible, I mean, uh, the Maison Aeron in Quebec, I think that's a retirement home. And it's a place where people were paying up to $10,000 a month. Yeah, you're right. That even, you know, makes it worse to think that they are paying that amount of money and uh, those results that come out of there. But again, you know, it does go back to uh, not dealing with the proper protection and infection controls in every single public uh, institution that's still uh, remaining open and is considered an essential service. And again, we could even add uh, home care services into that as well. So it is uh, that that was horrific, but a lot of that was caused by the fact that the staff were no longer in there because they were either infected or um, they had chosen to work at another site, which is a real uh, pandemic on top of a pandemic in and of itself. Are you satisfied that some of the recent measures that the government has put in banning people from working in more than one facility and also sending in teams from hospitals and also the army, are we getting this thing under control, Jane? Um, uh, I'm I'm not uh, quite on board yet. Um, I hear, you know, certain things from the premier and from the ministers around testing, but it doesn't seem to be panning out in the homes. So we're not getting the testing in the homes that we should. I hear from my, you know, from people in the homes that um, PPE is not where it's available to staff. It's not being properly used all the time. Um, And then we have this sort of influx, you know, yes, 
they're allowed to only work in one home if they work for the home. But then we're bringing these people from all sorts of other places that are allowed in, whether they're from agencies or hospitals. So uh, I'm really concerned because I still don't think that they have proper controls within those homes. And then they're still within, they can't isolate and cohort. So it's still a huge problem. Jane Mita, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. This is the best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Imagine going through a serious, unrelated illness in the midst of the pandemic. Maybe this is you. The process is incredibly stressful for cancer patients who are facing delayed or changed treatment plans. And even when they receive their chemotherapy or other medications, it has to be a constant worry because the drugs compromise an already weakened immune system. On Wednesday, Libby was joined by Dr. Sandy Sedev, a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center and the affiliated Ivan Greenberg Family Cancer Center at the Queensway Carlton Hospital. I think it's truly a unique situation. I mean, we were used to dealing with crises and uncertainty and, you know, and, and cancer care, but this has been really revolutionizing how we approach every patient encounter. It's uh, something of an unknown role for most of us. I think the only patients I have that can make analogies are those that have either been through a World War II or through the Great Depression, you know, where they remember this kind of upheaval. But it's, uh, we're all learning on the fly. Okay, well, take me through uh, what you might normally do when you see a patient and, and how it is now. I mean, uh, do you see, you see patients in a clinic or otherwise? Yeah, it's, uh, we almost have to review our caseload, you know, day by day and try to pre-plan which patients need to come in. Like some patients, we have to do a physical examination to assess them. But more and more, the vast majority of our patients, we're, um, we're, we're seeing them or talking to them now by telephone, by telemedicine, by secure um, Ontario telemedicine network links to their home iPhone, iPad, or laptop, so we can communicate that way. Uh, acknowledging some of the, you know, the... Um, um, imperfections of uh, electronic communication, but patients really have appreciated that option uh, to avoid coming in in person. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was at a presentation around Christmas time, and uh, it was by uh, a young oncologist from Princess Margaret who had kind of drawn up tentative plans for a lot of virtual medicine in cancer treatment because the truth is that, you know, it Either you're coming from a long way off or, you know, your body is kind of worn down and, and uh, it can be a relief, uh, even at the best of times, not to have to drag yourself into the hospital. Well, indeed. In fact, right now we're having ongoing discussions across the country about how this new norm may change things, even if we do get through this completely and have a vaccine or a cure you know, this may be a new way of doing things in the future for a lot of our patients. We've been doing telemedicine for satellite clinics for patients driving more than an hour and a half to come in for several years, you know, quite successfully. And it's been a very common strategy in the Maritimes and um, Western and Northern parts of Canada. But I think truly the patients do appreciate it. Um, there are some that we do have to physically examine and have, you know, personal discussions with but many of our visits, probably this may be a new way of doing things. Normally, people bring somebody with them. You couldn't bring somebody anymore, and that kind of ups the whole anxiety, right? you know, 
the anxiety part of it, Dr. Sedev. It sure does. And we have an increasing number of patients now that are either elderly or have English as a second language or may have hearing impairment, you know, so it's, it's really helpful. We encourage everyone of every age to always bring a buddy or a relative when they come to see us to take all the information in. We've been making do with, um, you know, keeping people on speakerphone or including their relatives or friends uh, during our discussions in clinic and certainly trying our best. And if we have patients that are very sick where we really need to have that relative there, uh, there have been case-by-case exceptions just to help them, you know, with, with communications. But emotionally, it's a big deal. They need to hold someone's hand sometimes, and it can be a big challenge. You know, I'm even talking about for chemo, you know, you don't usually, well, I'm remembering mine, you don't necessarily see the doctor during chemo, but usually you you bring somebody with you, uh, you know, just to pass away the time and take your mind off what's going through your veins. And yeah, and in fact, we do, they do actually see us or encounter us by telemedicine before most chemo, so we can just see how they're doing. Um, and that, you know, that face-to-face contact is important. I must say, you know, that the oncology patients have been tremendously understanding They've been very appreciative of the accommodations going on. The families have been lovely. So what would be a very stressful time, I think, has been mitigated just by the, you know, the compassion of the staff, the extra work done. If I get off the phone with a patient for a complicated discussion, usually the chemotherapy or medical oncology nurse will then do a follow-up consult by phone or one before my visit to lay the groundwork and reinforce details. So we really... I think we've done a great job in helping to make up for the gaps. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with, Dr. Sidhu? I think the main thing is to have a good communication with your team. Um, they are looking out for you as a patient and your family. Uh, any questions, you know, be free to feel free to ask them, any uncertainties or anxieties. And I think we are starting to feel confident now that this real uh, abrupt uh, hit of delays and stresses will be easing up enough to allow us to do everything normally pretty soon. Dr. Sandy Sadev, medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center and the affiliated Ivan Greenberg Family Cancer Center at the Queensway Carlton Hospital. He was in conversation with our own Libby Snymer, a two-time cancer survivor herself. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Valerie in Toronto is a cancer patient and says she's actually had a positive experience during the pandemic. I wanted to let you know that in the last couple of weeks, I've had virtual consultations with two oncologists through PMH, and it was wonderful. Instead of spending two to three hours with long, long waits in the clinic, I had a six-minute conversation each time. I asked questions. Questions were asked of me. Resolution was made. It was fabulous. I would love to see that going forward. It obviously can't work for everything. If you really do need to put um, hands on a patient for an examination, that's reasonable. But just to give results is wonderful. Dennis in Brampton called about the discrepancies between private and public long-term care. The per diem that's given to uh, the long-term care homes, it's the same regardless of profit or not-for-profit. So it only makes sense that if it's for profit, you're going to take a piece of that off the top for overhead and profit, which leaves less money for patient care than if it was for not-for-profit, than if it was for profit. 
With respect to the, the, the structures in the buildings, the assumption that the private sector borrows money cheaper than the government is not correct either. I mean, the government's able to borrow money more cheaply than uh, the private sector. The reason why we have not done that is governments are loath to carry debt on their books. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Mary in Burlington, who phoned to call out opposition MPs for politicizing COVID-19. I am terribly, terribly disappointed at the way this pandemic has become a political football. Shame on the Conservative Party and its leadership contenders to be leading them. It's not only the people who are ill and dying. What about the grieving relatives? Shame on the leadership contenders for the Conservative Party. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. That's 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.